Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. There is a huge clearinghouse of uh, board game reviews and video reviews and commentary from all of the Dice Tower podcast family, as well as, of course, Tom and Eric and Z and uh, Sam and everybody else. So go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer and see what is there for you. Longview is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out Gamesurplus.com the next time you're thinking about making an online board game purchase and find out why they're my first choice and the first choice of so many people. They have a fantastic reputation for customer service and care and packaging and shipping. They are fast and speedy in their delivery of the games that you order. They are unparalleled as importers of hard-to-find games, so if you're looking for something, uh, don't think it might be out of reach. Send a message over to games at gamesurplus.com and ask Velma if she can track you down a copy of whatever it is you're looking for. Find out why gamesurplus.com is so special. And if you do decide to order from them, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. I also, of course, want to send a shout-out to my local game store as well, uh, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. The Gamer's Edge is a growing resource for gamers in the northeastern PA region, northern New Jersey, and southern New York. They are conveniently located off of Interstate 80. They have a huge amount of table space. They have uh, tons and tons of games and collectible card games and video games and comic books and role-playing games. Uh, Just about anything that you would want. Uh, When it comes to gaming, the Gamer's Edge has it. So if you're in the region, stop by sometime on Main Street in Stroudsburg and check out what they have to offer. And if you do decide to stop by, please be sure to tell them the Longview sent you. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by another first-time contributor, a gentleman by the name of Josh Walton. So, Josh, uh, hello, and thank you very much for agreeing to be on the show. Well, hello, and thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was really nice to uh, get the geek mail from you where you were kind of asking about, hey, you know, uh, would you be interested in doing a show about The Lord of the Rings, uh, the card game? Um, the living card game uh, that has been put out by Fantasy Flight. Um, And I have been a fan of that game for a while. And I thought, yeah, you know, I don't think we've ever really talked about it. And that would be a fantastic topic uh, and was really grateful to you for reaching out. So uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, taking the time to do that and and taking the chance. And and thank you for waiting until we were able to get scheduled. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely no problem. Uh, I was just excited that yeah, nobody else beat me to it. It's something <laughs> I've wanted to do it for quite a while, and I don't know what was holding me back, but I never sent the message. And every time you released a new episode, I was thinking, is this going to be the one where somebody beat me to Lord of the Rings? And no, no. It just kept not happening, so I finally took my shot. It was waiting for you to do it is really the bottom line. <laughs> it I think was that's, meant to be. It was meant to be. Um, <laughs> So yeah, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's great, and uh, there, there's been a lot of people who've kind of said that, like you know, that they were just kind of waiting for me to do a show about this game or that game. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times I've mentioned like El Grande, and I mean, I mm. know there's people out there who uh, have played and are passionate about Demacher, you know, and it's like I'm just kind of waiting for someone to kind of say, you know what, why not me? Um, 
because, you know, these are great uh, older games. And, you know, actually, truth be told, I mean, when we're starting to talk about this game, this game has been around a while, too. So uh, this is yeah. one that has kind of uh, stood the test of time a little bit. So, um, you know, for me, honestly, Josh, the, the deal with this game was I grew up with Lord of the Rings loved the books uh, read them when i was uh preteen um you know i thoroughly enjoyed them lost myself in in the world uh, of of tolkien's uh, kind of imagination watched all the old terrible rankin bass kind of versions <laughs> of you know like the hobbit and um yeah. you know and and just uh, absolutely loved them and then of course you know there was this huge renaissance in uh, popularity when Peter Jackson started making the movies. Um, sure. And this brought so many new people uh, kind of into the fold and uh, people who had never had the time or the, or the chance to read the books are now kind of getting to see the stories. And uh, it, it kind of renewed the interest in that sort of license, in that, in that intellectual property. And so lo and behold, uh, we end up with a living card game, which is uh, at the time, it was kind of a relatively new thing. Uh, as a matter of mm -hmm. fact, I think this was uh, among the first of Fantasy Flight's living card games. I think it was this and a Game of Thrones. I, I believe so. And maybe Warhammer Invasion was out ah, by that's now. True. That's true. I'm not true. certain about that. That's one that I'm not familiar with. So, uh, uh, me either. Yeah, that, that could very well be. So, um, you know, but you know, this, this was kind of a, a very interesting kind of a time. It's 2011. And yeah. so, you know, the game has been out for quite some time, and uh, it, it was using this kind of living card game rather than a collectible card game. There had been apparently numerous uh, sort of Middle-earth and, and uh, themed kind of collectible card games, but this was the sort of um, uh, living card game format, and the designer is listed as uh, Nate French. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it just kind of took off, you know? It took off, and... It was kind of a, a, a super interesting game for me because it was a game that really played well solo, and then you could also play it with uh, other players. And so this was really intriguing to me because at the time, uh, there wasn't really anyone else in my family who was into this, uh, into this theme at all. It was just me. Yeah. And so this game kind of I, I was really interested in for the solo aspects of it because, you know, hey, if, if my wife doesn't want to play a game, um, you know, at the time my kids were younger and none of them were really into Lord of the Rings. I'm like, okay, I can just sit down and play this myself and have a lot of fun. So that's kind of like my backstory on this game. What about yours? How did you first kind of become aware of this? Well, I got to say, uh, mine is very, very similar to yours. Uh, always been a very big fan of the Lord of the Rings books growing up, and then I absolutely love the movies. I know there's maybe less crossover to some degree. Some people who love one don't maybe like the other as much, but I, I really like them both. And I did play, you mentioned uh, the Middle Earth CCG that was out, and then there was the Lord of the Rings TCG, which was sort of based on the movies. And uh, I played both of those, really liked them. I pretty much played all of the CCGs. I got started gaming playing Magic and pretty much tried every game on the market, much to my friend's chagrin. They were always tired of me bringing <laughs> a new game to the table that they were going to have to buy into, and uh, the same thing pretty much still happens today. But uh, so, yeah, I just uh, I was always into the card games, but the board gaming thing was kind of new for me until about 2012 was when I got heavily into board games. And um, it was, I started out with, I discovered the Dice Tower 
but my real downfall was Rodney Smith and Watch It Played. <laughs> Once I found that channel, I just started buying everything he put in front of me. Uh, but the one I was most excited about was The Lord of the Rings. It was one of the first series that he did where he did a solo playthrough of that. And it was just, it was fascinating. I absolutely thought it looked awesome. And, uh, but I, I, it was funny. I was going back through my purchases today and I thought I got into this game earlier than I did. Uh, Cause like you said, it came out in 2011 and I didn't get into it until later in 2012. Oh, okay. And then I remembered, right. yeah. Then I remembered back then I was actually discerning about my purchases and took the time <laughs> to really research a game Right, right. Uh, that, w- that wouldn't last much longer. But uh, at the time, uh, yeah, I didn't just buy every game that looked cool. Right, right. Like yeah. I uh, like I did there for a while. Uh, my wife has since put a stop to She's that. put the kibosh on that. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I've, we've slowed way down. Yeah, I think that is a common theme, whether it's uh, the husband or the wife that gets into the hobby and kind of goes down the rabbit hole. You know, one of them eventually kind of looks at the other and says, you need to stop. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's, you know, it's kind of a common sad story. Um, well, it's you know, and it's it's so difficult because the discovery of the hobby and of mm-hmm. the different types of games that are out there is really kind of unlike anything else that I've ever really experienced. Because other than Dungeons and Dragons, which I kind of grew up playing, um, mm-hmm. because it was just this whole kind of new world and. Uh, more is always better you know there there's always you know i I haven't seen that and i've got to try this and uh so you do you kind of go through this acquisition phase where you're kind of like binging uh and just kind of grabbing every game you can so uh, i totally get where you're where you're coming from with that um Mm -hmm. so you actually started off as a ccg kind of a player and and then you saw this and you thought "Ooh, you know this this looks like this could be fun so um I did. What was you know? What was your kind of? What was the? I'm gonna try that again. Okay. So it looks like you kind of got into this as a CCG player, and that was kind of your background in history. And so I can understand why you'd be attracted to the game. But were you looking at it as sort of a a solo experience, as a two player, as a four player? Because this one actually has a lot of flexibility. So what was kind of your audience when you were looking at this game? I would say I was really attracted to the the solo ability, like like you said. It's it was just such a neat idea. I think I vaguely knew that there was such a thing as solitaire board games. And uh, again, like I said, my friends were already getting sick of me constantly putting a new game in front of them. So I knew that this one was safe for me to buy. And if nobody wanted to play it, I could still play it by myself. Right. And, yeah. and I had been pretty heavily into the CCGs I had played in the past. I definitely have that personality that dives into lifestyle games and really owns them. So I knew that this would be a thing that that if I liked it, it was really going to be a thing I played a lot. So I wanted I was excited that I had the ability to to play it by myself. I could play it as much as I wanted. So, yeah, I grabbed a core set and, well, I've gotten everything since. Yeah, you know, that is one of the interesting parts of the game to me. And something I'd like to talk a little bit about more in detail later is the kind of player count questions. Um, Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there are so many different things we can talk about with this game. But why don't we start off real quickly. um, Would you like to give kind of just a basic rundown of how the game is played and and sort of, you know, what what it's like for people out there who maybe haven't had a chance to play it yet? Sure, I'll do my best to keep it short, but one of the things I like about the game is it is pretty complex. 
So I'll try not to give it a short shrift while not taking an hour to teach it. Uh, <laughs> so basically the game, it's a cooperative game where you are trying to accomplish a quest. It's scenario based. So every time you sit down to play the game, there's going to be a particular quest you're working through. And then over the course of that game, you're going to have a series of rounds. And in those rounds, you have playthrough phases. So you start the game. Each player is going to have three hero cards in front of them. You always start with your heroes in play, which is one of the things I like about the game, that you already have stuff even when you get started. And then you're going to have a deck of cards. Each player is going to have their own deck that they have built before they've come to the game. So if you've played games like Magic or Netrunner, things like that, it's that same idea where you have your own set of cards that you're going to customize. And then... Basically, you're going to start, you have seven phases a turn, you uh, have your resource phase where every character is going to collect one resource token and you're going to draw a new card. And then you have your planning phase where you're going to put cards into play. There's basically uh, ally cards, which is other characters that you can bring into play. There's attachments where you can sort of beef up your characters with, uh, you can increase their statistics and things like that. You can give them new special abilities. And then sort of the heart of the game is the, the next phase, is the questing phase. So where you have built your own deck of cards to bring to the game, as I said, you're playing against a quest, and that quest is also comprised of a deck of cards that you have to put together, and there's some really interesting rules as to how the quest decks are built, or rather it's called the encounter deck. So when you quest, what you're trying to do is you're trying to put progress tokens on the quest cards it, they're basically telling the story of the game and each requires so many progress tokens and that's for 90 percent of the quests that's how they're defeated you're simply trying to put as many progress tokens as that quest card requires so you enter into the quest phase you're going to take some of your characters and sort of commit them to the quest and basically what you're just going to be doing is you're going to be comparing a statistic on your characters it's called willpower every character has a willpower value, attack, defense, and then some hit points. So they're going to be taking the willpower up against what is coming out of the encounter deck. And the cards that come out of the encounter deck are similar to your cards in that they also have attack and defense and hit points, but instead of willpower, they have what's called threat. So the game has this whole concept of threat in that the, the evil will of Sauron is always watching over you and he's always getting closer and there's always this uh, feeling of doom and peril just like what you'd experience in the books and the movies where you know the quest like it said stands on the edge of a knife and you're always just getting closer and closer to doom so the threat is increasing and you're pitting your willpower against that threat and if you have more willpower than the threat that is currently stacked against you you will place progress which is again what you're trying to do and then uh, the enemies that come out of the deck will likely attack you as the game goes on. So you also have a combat phase where you have to attempt to defeat the enemies or they will potentially kill your heroes, which is one of the ways you can lose the game. And then you just have sort of an end of turn cleanup step where you sort of reset everything and get ready to start the next round. Well, thanks for that overview because, uh, you know, you certainly hit on all of the highlights and, and the sort of important parts um, of the game. And I, you know, want to kind of circle back to that a little bit later and talk about what it's like trying to learn the game because I have some Oh, yeah, there's a lot that. more to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at its heart, you, you have this wonderful AI system, which is that threat deck. 
and mm-hmm. this is kind of what you're going to be playing against. And um, each one of those decks, and this is one of the things I really enjoy about this game, is each one of the decks is kind of themed slightly differently, right? And mm-hmm. there's different kinds of objectives, and every one of them is kind of fresh. And every one of them is kind of a puzzle that you have to try to kind of figure out. you know. And, and there's this very kind of common, at least for me, I don't know about you, this very common experience of the first time I play, I get destroyed. The oh, second yeah. time of the play I, I play, I get punished. The third time I play, I get kicked around a lot, right? And then maybe the fourth time, I start to see, like, a glimmer of hope. And then, like, the fifth time, I'm holding my own. And, you know, so basically what happens is, you you know, you set this up, you play the game, and the game is going to kick you around. And you have to kind of start to observe, like, what is it that this particular quest really needs? Like, what what mm-hmm. does it require? You know, like, what is the story here? Uh, because each of the heroes and the characters that you can put into play are better or worse at different things. So, like, if it's, you know, a very combat kind of heavy-laden sort of uh, scenario, you're going to want to throw Gimli in there, you know? Um, there, there's just, you know, these certain characters that do better... Um, at certain kinds of quests. And so you begin to do what a lot of players like to do, especially collectible card uh, game players, which is you start to kind of adjust your deck that you're taking, and then you're going to kind of do another test run, you know, and you're going to see how far do I get. Did this help me? Did this, you know, did this card combination that I pulled out, you know, I, I got rid of these three cards because, you know, they weren't really helping me much. They weren't really coming up and they were kind of useless. They were dead. So I replaced them with these. And now did these cards, did this new combination help me? Did it not? What, what other adjustments do I need to make? And so over time, you kind of learn the hurdles that you're going to have to kind of jump over. And then you're going to have time to kind of play with your deck and tweak it until you get it to the point where you actually can sort of run against this scenario and have a a decent shot at winning. This is what I loved about the game because it it was an enormous amount of um, mental kind of stimulation. Like I would find myself thinking about the game a lot when I wasn't playing the game which is something that Magic players have reported to me. I was not a Magic player, and I, I still don't like Magic the Gathering. That's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that notion of considering the game and thinking about different cards and different ways to build your deck when you're not even playing. And I found that with this game. And I love the fact that it was a deck of cards. Like It, it, it was almost like I was playing against another mind. It really was. It, it did such a good job of being mean and unpredictable and uh, challenging that I really did often feel like I was playing against another person. Um, is that something yeah. that you would agree with or, or you know, not agree with? Because you're coming at it from a different background than me. No, that, like you said, being a, a Magic player, that is definitely one of the main things that attracted me to it. You know, you play a game like Magic and, you know, 70% or more of the game, I feel, is is the building of the deck. And then when you go to play the game, that's you just kind of play your deck out and you see how it goes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I used to really enjoy that. I don't play Magic anymore, but but yeah. So then I discover this game, which has that that deck building that I love, the customization, the ability to do kind of whatever you want. And then, but you go up against numerous challenges. It's not, you know, I often describe this game to people 
as well you know it's kind of like pandemic where it's cooperative but instead of playing the same scenario every time which is fine i like pandemic a lot but you have over 70 different scenarios that you can you know attempt to play against you're still playing the same system but like you said the quests they change things up so much and that's actually my favorite part of the game is the quests themselves because i think the designers of this game have done just such a phenomenal job of keeping it fresh it's been out for five years and every quest well okay there's a few that feel pretty similar i suppose but there are so many quests that just have these very unique mechanisms and they somehow manage to evoke the theme so well and so you get to encounter this quest and then you get to build whatever deck you want to play against it so it's you know it's there's two major aspects to the game that are both just so fun yeah, I would agree, and I want to I want to go back to something you just said because I can't figure this out, but maybe you can. Okay. You said somehow each of these quests really seems to be able to invoke the theme, and they mm-hmm. do, like they they really really do, and I don't know whether it's the timing of how things work, whether it's the threat. And, you know, because the game comes with these lovely little threat dials, you know, these beautiful mm-hmm. little dials that you get to put together to basically track when you lose, right? <laughs> and, you know, as you got all this really cool stuff, I don't know whether it's just that or whether it really is the, uh, the design of the quest and the cards that go in the packs. I mean, how is it that you feel that this game does such a good job? Have you been able to pinpoint how it feels so thematic? Well, honestly, I think it's everything. And I'm going to try really hard to not just love on this game for an hour, but it's going to be hard not to because I really do think it's the best game I've played. And I think what we're talking about right now is what makes the game shine is it's literally just everything from the art, which is fantastic. You know, people often remark on how beautiful the art is, the components of the game, like you said, those threat tiles, big, chunky cardboard threat dials that keep track of Every player, I didn't mention this in the overview, but every player has their own personal threat value, which will determine whether or not they're bugging Sauron enough for him to send his minions out to fight you, ultimately. But if that threat dial ever reaches 50, and it usually starts somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, uh, if it ever reaches 50, you lose. So you have to manage your threat. And so you have these really nice dials to keep track of that. That easily could have just been a couple dice. Or something so you have those the beautiful art and then the mechanics of the quests themselves like there's uh so there's three different types of cards that can come out of the encounter deck there's enemies that you have to fight with combat there are locations that sort of add quest points to the quest so those progress tokens that you're trying to put on the quest these locations come out and they can uh increase the threat that you're trying to overcome and they can slow you down and they can have nasty effects on them and there's also these treachery cards, which uh, this may not be a popular opinion, but those are actually my favorite types of cards because they're just so mean and so brutal. And they're just sort of one-time events that come out, they do something awful, and then you're done with it. But those cards, it seems like more than any other, can just wreck your day. And the, 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 the names they give the cards just evoke the theme and what the card says it does and what it's called just seems to tie together and everything fits because they build every one of these quests sort of individually. There are some cards that will be repeated from quest to quest within a cycle, and we haven't talked about how that works yet, the cycles, but 
You'll see some cards again and again, but every quest comes with its own pack of cards that are just for that quest. And I think now that we're talking about this out loud, I suspect that the key to what makes every quest special lies there is that every one of these quests is individually designed to do a certain thing. And I think Nate French did a great job when he first came out with the game and we're six or seven, we're six cycles in. And the guys that are running it now, Matt Newman and Caleb Grace, have really just honed that to a fine point where they want a quest to kill you in a certain way and they are going to make it happen. <laughs> and it's it's just, it's it's brutal, but it's just, it is, it's fun. It's, like you said, it's they're so thematically designed. Yeah, I think it is those kind of card, those specific cards and, and the locations. And I didn't really think about it too much until you started talking about it, you know, the names of the locations and... I remember one quest in particular. God, what was it? I was like stuck in like there's like a card that comes out. It's like the marshes or something. And every time it's 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 in one of the early cycles, probably the first cycle or something. And every okay. time this stupid card came out, it just delayed. Like you'd have to put any new progress tokens on that first. Oh, sure. Before you could, you know, get back to the main quest. And it was like you were like lost in the marshes, like stumbling around. And you really did feel you know, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, hey, you know, we found our way back. Yay, you know, we're going along the path. And then, like, another one would come out, and you're like, oh, God, really? Like, we're stuck <laughs> again, you know? And, uh, you know, you, you just kind of – the cards themselves, um, you know, really start to kind of uh, pull out that theme. Um, you know, I think about uh, – what was it? Uh, oh, geez, what was it? The conflict at uh, – At the Carrick. At, at the Carrick with the, 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 trolls. the trolls. Oh, my God, the trolls. They're you so know? big. And I mean, the, the way they come out and, and how that mm-hmm. works, um, just incredible kind of uh, thematics that are kind of brought into it. And like you said, it makes everyone a unique challenge. And I think, uh, again, I'm going to I'm going to sort of um, uh, just agree with you about the art. Like, I loved the fact that the art had nothing to do with the movies as much yeah. as I love the movies. I loved the original art and thought that it was just really wonderfully done. Um, not just the, the portraiture of like the characters, but uh, the landscapes and, and everything else. Um, the design of the cards, the look of the cards, uh, everything really just kind of shines uh, there from uh, a visual kind of an aesthetic kind of standpoint. So all of these things together kind of make for this really thematic kind of experience, which is interesting because... I don't usually think of games like this as overly thematic, but Mm -hmm. it seems like this kind of series of card games, whether it's like Netrunner or uh, Game of Thrones or this one, the theme really does kind of come through in a a surprising way for these kind of living card games. So, um, you know, all of these things that you're talking about match my experience. Um, and I'm not going to tell you the game is not frustrating. Like, there have been many times oh, sure. when I've been really frustrated, um, where no matter what I seem to do, I just can't seem to get over the hurdle. And so I start to kind of uh, just start to blindly kind of start swapping things out and trying just different characters entirely and just trying to find something. And sometimes you can have that feeling of sort of stumbling around in the dark a little bit uh, or being mm-hmm. lost in the marshes, I guess, and and until you find uh, a combination that's going to work for you. Um, so there is a, a certain frustration level in the game, or I'm just really bad at playing it. Have you ever been frustrated playing this? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt this game is hard. 
and it's it's designed to be hard you know i think as gamers we often want our cooperative games to be difficult because you know if you beat it on your first or second try you're not likely to come back to it and and i think that's been true for me there are harder quests and easier quests and it seems like often if i beat a quest right after i crack open the pack I probably don't play it again, at least not for a while. Like, oh, well, I guess I'm done with that one and I move on. But when I come against something that's particularly difficult, that's the one that I sit and chip away at and play over and over again. But but yeah, it can be it can be really difficult and frustrating. And so there's there's no denying that. And I think that turns away some new players at times. We get a lot of people coming onto the board game geek forums just talking about how hard the game is and and you see a lot of encouragement to just stick it out you get better try different cards and it can be frustrating but at the same time it does add to the appeal because it gives you a reason to try out you know all these different player cards because that's something else too to kind of tangent off of is the way you know we're talking about the quests a lot but the player cards the cards that are given to the players to build their decks with there's such a wide variety of things that they do. And occasionally we get a card in a pack that's like, how, what does this card even do? It just right, doesn't right, seem yeah. helpful. And sometimes, and I believe this is part of the challenge of designing this game, there are cards that are really only good in a couple situations or a particular quest. And they're giving you a tool to deal with something that you don't normally deal with. So you're not going to put it in every deck. You're going to put it, I'm playing against, uh, what is it, the Dead Marshes where... Gollum is trying to escape into the encounter deck and there's one or two cards that are particularly helpful for that that you're probably not going to play that really don't seem good in any other quest and and when you're working with a limited card pool like you know the cards have come out very slowly that's one of the things they could talk about that might not people might not like about the game is it has developed very slowly over five years uh, so you're, you're working with kind of a limited card pool and you're you're desperately trying to find a way to win so you're going to try all these cards that didn't seem that good, and, and maybe they might be more useful here in this particular quest. Yeah, that is one of the fascinating things, this kind of notion of you know trying to find the perfect card uh, for the perfect situation, that sort of key in the lock kind of an idea. And you know, I, I have found that to be true, uh, that you know there are cards that I have seemingly kind of scoffed at uh, for the longest time, and then I'll end up, you know, kind of going back to it and like, oh, okay, that's what this is for because mm-hmm. that's the only way I'm going to get past this or or something of that nature. So, um, yeah, I, I think I'm in agreement with you there as well. Um, one of the things too that I kind of uh, wanted to ask you about is you talk about the limited card pool. You talk about the fact that this is a living card game. Now, for people out there who don't know what that means, I think most people do now, but just in case, uh, you know, a living card game, everybody has the ability to get the exact same cards as opposed to a CCG where, you know, you kind of buy a, a new deck or a new pack of cards and there's going to be variety in that. You're going to get some cards that aren't in other packs or mm. uh, there's, there's a limited number of them that are in circulation, period. And so, uh, you know, people will look far and wide for certain cards and certain things. Well, you don't really have that with the LCGs because if you buy the pack, you're going to get exactly the same cards that I got. And we're going to have exactly the same, you know, quest cards, quest deck. Everything is going to be exactly the same. So you have this new life being breathed into the game with these expansion packs. And yet, 
you're not kind of on a treadmill, you know, trying to run as fast as you can to keep up with everybody else because this person got this card and she got that card and I can't compete against her because she's got that card and until I get this card, you know. So you don't have mm-hmm. any of those problems. Um, what you do have is you have this this kind of puzzle that we've been talking about that you're trying to figure out that the community is trying to figure out. So I have a two-part question for you here. Uh, The first part is because of this limited card pool, I've heard a lot of talk with this game and other games that people feel that you need to buy two or three uh, copies of the base game in order to have the cards that you need to build the decks that, you know, a lot of people feel you have to have to have the maximum number of cards of each type or, or some such thing. Um, and so, you know, I've heard grumblings on forums for Netrunner, for this one, for um, Game of Thrones. I mean, I've heard people yeah. talking, saying, well, you know, you must buy three core sets if you want to play this seriously. And I'm like, oh, my God, really? Um, you know, I didn't do that. Um, I still had some success with the game, but I wasn't necessarily playing competitively in any way. I was just kind of a solo experience or me and one other person. Um, so do you think that that is a real thing? Is that something that needs to be done, number one? And then number two, um, you know, what would you say to you know, the people that are, are kind of critical of the game because of these this sort of endless nature of expansions and uh, i think that um that's going to lead you maybe into talking about this idea of cycling of 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 the cards the cycles of cards so what would you say to those things right well the first question how many core sets to buy that is probably the number one question that appears uh in the forums when people get in and and it's a real question to ask you know fantasy flight has long been criticized for the way they do, like you said, they all their core sets are this way. I heard the from some people that the second edition of Game of Thrones is particularly bad if you're just going to buy one, that you have to have at least two. And that in an, is a competitive game, which, again, is an advantage, I guess, that you could say that Lord of the Rings has, is since it's not a competitive game, you don't have to buy anything because you're not competing against anybody else. You're not trying to keep up, keep up with any kind of tournament circuit or anything like that but you know the competition is against the quests and you do want to beat the quests it's no fun if you lose constantly what fantasy flight does is they have opted for what they say variety so they'll give you a lot of different cards in a core set but only one or two copies of each and uh, i think in all their games but definitely in lord of the rings you can play with up to three copies of any card in your deck and often you do for the sake of consistently drawing the cards that you need. So you want three copies of every card, but when you buy the core set, you don't get three copies of every card because they want to give you more different cards. So with this game, you know, you can play it with one core set, but for me personally, I do think the best number is two, and that might be unfair to think I have to buy this game twice, and you're going to get to some degree cards that you're not going to be able to use. But I will say, if you do like this game, you're not going to mind buying everything because you're going to like it so much. So, But three core sets, that's for the hardest of the hardcore, I suppose, because if if you buy two core sets, you get three copies or more of almost every card. Uh, because there's only a few that you only get one copy of in the core set. And there's really only one, uh, the card Unexpected Courage, is the only card that's so so good that you 
you might consider buying a third copy of the core set just to get your third copy of that card. Wow. Because it it's the car, it's an attachment. I don't want to get too specific into a lot of cards, but it, this one is an attachment that you play it on a hero, which is your best cards are your heroes. You start with them in play. And it basically allows you to use that hero twice in a round. Typically, you can only use every character for one thing every turn. But with this particular card, it allows you to use a hero a second time. And that's that's very good. It's like having an extra hero. So that's a card that, you know, it's it's like the one caveat. Do I buy the third? Do I pay thirty dollars for my third copy of Unexpected Courage? <laughs> and you know, a lot of people have. Right, uh, right. I I got two core sets. I actually got my first one by trading on BGG a copy of the first edition of Game of Thrones core set for the Lord of the Rings, and then I pretty much immediately bought a second. So I guess for my in my case, I only had to buy one to have two, but I've I've never gone back and bought that third. Two unexpected courages is fine. I uh, you know I have three of everything else I want to play, but then um, the second question about having you know you get on this sort of endless treadmill of buying content uh, again, like with a game like this, I think if you enjoy it, you're not going to mind. And uh, there's a, a couple reasons, I guess. One, it's not expensive. So the core set is going to cost, you know, 30 to $40, depending on where you buy it. And then, you know, if you buy one or two, that might be a, a rather sizable investment to get started. But then after that, uh, they release what are called adventure packs. And those are 12, I think they retail for 15. But, you know, if you buy online, you can get them a little cheaper. And every adventure pack is going to give you another quest to play against. And then a few player cards to add into your decks to give you something new to try out and one new hero. And that's usually the most exciting part is, is the new hero because your decks are really shaped by what heroes you choose. So um, we're talking about the cycles. You, you have one big expansion or the core set in this case. And then you have six small ones, uh, again, called adventure packs. And that will make up one cycle. And that sort of tells one long story over the course of that that cycle and then they'll come out with what's called a deluxe expansion which will have three more quests the core set comes with three quests and then each deluxe expansion comes out with with three new quests and and a few more player cards and then six more adventure packs to to start a new cycle uh, so I, I think it's a really neat way to do it because every cycle sort of has its own theme because the lord of the rings universe for only being three novels and then, of course, there's The Hobbit and then some, you know, history books in The Silmarillion and other things. It's it's very big for how, I guess, little content there is about it. Tolkien just managed to create such this rich, diverse universe. And they have a lot to pull from. So depend to, between the various factions, you know, like there's the Men of Rohan, the Men of Gondor. There's various types of elves. There's dwarves. There's hobbits. There's so many different things, and every cycle usually focuses on one or two of those to sort of flesh out that particular type of card to build decks with. And then we start a new cycle, and we get to be excited about, oh, now we're going to see a lot of dwarves. And then, oh, now we're going to see a lot of guys from Rohan. And so if you're a fan of the theme, if you like Lord of the Rings a lot, that that's really going to get you excited, and it's going to want you to continue with that. But but yeah, I can't lie. There's There's certainly a lot you could purchase out there. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that's kind of it's it's something that makes the game really exceptional, but it does kind of also kind of get you into that little bit of that money sink, you know, after a while. Mm -hmm. uh, when you start adding up 
what it is that you've spent on all of it, you know, you realize it becomes a a significant investment fairly quickly. Uh, However, you know, when I looked at the hours and hours that I played it, uh, I felt it was a good investment. You know, I I didn't regret it. Um, One of the other things, though, that I wanted to touch on was the online community. Now, you've talked a lot Mm. about the online community for um, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, the card game here. And, you know, I've heard... So many different kinds of things about, um, you know, people who have gone for help and how, you know, supportive the community is and and, uh, how helpful people are, which is really, really nice. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I've also heard about, you know, people who kind of will publish like decks, you know, they'll say like, okay, this is a deck that if you make this deck and you run against this scenario... Um, you know, you're you're probably going to have a good chance of winning. I'm kind of curious. Like this has been done, I think, with every single collectible card game or living card game that I've ever heard of. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about this this notion of kind of like solving a particular scenario and then kind of publishing that? Do you think that's a service to the community, or do you think it's a disservice? Oh, I, I, uh, I solving it seems. It's a strong word, I know. It's a strong yeah. word, yeah. Yeah, but but I definitely see what you're saying. Um, there's so much variety every time you play a quest, but there are certainly decks, and especially now with the size of the card pool, uh, people have built some just insanely powerhouse decks. Now, it's taken us five years to get to this point, but there you can now build decks that just completely will break the game. And, and, and they do deal with that. We can talk about the FAQ and card erratas later if we want to, but... Um, but as far as the online community, I think it's it's just fantastic. It is full of really helpful people and very friendly. And like you said, these communities do tend to spring up around every CCG. And I think it's just the nature of a lifestyle game. You know, a game that you're going to invest this much money and time in, you really want to share that. And, and what happens is you, you just build up this community of people that all feel so passionately. You know, you have to be really into a game to play it consistently for five years to purchase every product they put in front of you. And just to continue to be so interested in it and excited about it month after month as they release new product. And so you build up this community and and Lord of the Rings is particularly um, just well fleshed out. There's there's the forums, both on BGG and, and on Fantasy Flight website. There are numerous blogs. There are multiple podcasts dedicated to just this game. There there's just so much content that and I do think is ultimately uh, a, quite a service. People are often asking, you know, what deck can I use to build this quest? I've tried it 20 times and I just can't win. And people, I think people do want that. And the nice thing about it is if you don't want that, you don't have to use it. You know, you can just say, well, I'm going to build my own decks. So I'm not going to look these up, but it's there if you need it. So you're looking at it more as an optional kind of a thing um, in sure. the same way that you know, I look at, uh, I still really enjoy the game A Few Acres of Snow, uh, mm. even though, you know, apparently there is a way to consistently sort of the break hammer. the game. Yeah, the Halifax yeah. Hammer. So, uh, you know, I just kind of choose not to read about how to do that. And so I can still enjoy the game. So it seems the way, it seems to be kind of the same thing you're saying there. Sure, um, that and actually also it might be nice once in a while to absolutely smash a quest into the dirt. <laughs> It would just be cathartic. Right, right. One that's so just beating once you in over a while, the head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me that perfect deck for that quest. But again, right. the nature of this game, that perfect deck is going to totally stumble and fall against a different quest. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's that's kind of the part of the game that I really enjoyed was trying to figure that out. Um, mm-hmm. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is Fantasy Flight has kind of announced with Netrunner. Now, I was curious if they've done this with Lord of the Rings, where there's a certain amount of cards, like from this date going back to this date, that are considered... Um, legitimate cards that are uh, eligible for, you know, tournament play or organized mm-hmm. play or whatnot, and then anything kind of that is outside of that is now kind of considered retired. Not that you can't play with those cards anymore, but if you're doing any kind of official events or anything, like at a, at a, at a friendly local game store or whatever, you can't use those cards. Is Lord of the Rings, are they doing the same thing with that that they are doing with Netrunner, like where they're thinking of like retiring certain cycles of cards? And if so, what do you think of that plan? Uh, no, not so far. They've actually gone a very interesting and different direction with this because since there is no competitive format, there is no meta where you're trying to keep up with the the best decks. Instead, the meta is kind of the newest quest. Whatever the newest quest came out, that's sort of that's the decks people are building, and the quests are constantly getting more difficult. So instead of like every card is there is no tournament setting, but I think even if Fantasy Flight did impose some sort of official sanction on playing the game by myself at home, being the type of gamer I am, I would still abide by those rules just because, you know, I want to play the game correctly. Right, right. There hasn't been anything like that. What they do instead is, so, you know, like I said, we have, you know, we're in the sixth cycle of the game. There's over 70 quests, but if you go back and play those core set quests or like the really hard ones, like you mentioned, Conflict at the Carrick against the Trolls. If I take cards that I've gotten out of the most recent cycles and go back and play that quest, I'm going to destroy it every time. And so what they've done is instead of retiring cards or saying I can't use new cards against old quests, they have come out with what's called the Nightmare Decks. And what Nightmare is, it's a print-on-demand. You don't really... I think you can get them in stores maybe, but you mostly order them from the website, and it's a new version of an old quest that makes it harder. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really neat, and they're really scary. So you can take the core set quests that are five years old, and you put these Nightmare cards. It's kind of a... You swap some in, swap some out kind of thing. And so you have this nightmare version of a quest, and it's it's just so much more difficult. So that's a really neat way to keep the old quests fresh if you do want to go back and play those old quests. Now, it is an additional purchase. Again, we're, we're definitely churning out the money for the game, but I, I, I know I keep saying this, but you know when you play a lifestyle game, I think you just kind of expect that. So, But yeah, so instead of retiring cards, they just go back and make the quests even harder. Yeah, that's and, interesting because I was a little worried when you were talking about how there are like new decks that you can put together that will just destroy or break the game. Like you, you know, you that that was the term that you used, and so I was kind mm-hmm. of immediately like, wait a minute, you know, is that 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 to me always seems like it's a bad thing. But what you're talking about is is going backwards um, with the car, with, you know, taking newer cards and going to older quests. You're saying that that can be a problem unless you kind of upgrade the quest with these nightmare quests yes yeah definitely and and just to uh, maybe 
not correct, but tweak something. I don't want to make it sound like the game has been completely broken. There's one particular user who's become quite popular recently, goes by the name of C-Stan on YouTube. Fans of the game will know who I'm talking about, and he posts these videos that are just insane. But when it comes to the average person playing the game at home, they're they're going to enjoy plenty of challenge. They're not going to stumble upon this. They're, the combos are just insane. But uh, yeah, for the average person, no no worries about the game being broken in any way. Okay. All right. Good, good. I was a little concerned about that. All right. So they're not doing that same kind of plan uh, because, as you said, this isn't really like a competitive game. So that's really interesting. And, and I appreciate you letting us know. While mm-hmm. you're talking about the community, um, is there anything in particular that you would recommend? Like, let's say someone out there listening to the show is thinking about uh, trying out the game or getting into the game. Um, because one of the things I want to talk about as soon as you're done this i just want to frame the question for you is i found learning the game and the ridiculous number of kind of phases and Mm -hmm. parts of the game it it's really rather complicated like you know i think about a game like netrunner where the complexity is in how the cards interact not in the phases of the game you know it's 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 pretty simple what you do your turns are lightning fast in that game um in, in this game there is this very stately kind of progression, you know, as yes. you go through these phases and it's very procedural and it's very um, heavy, which kind of fits mm-hmm. the theme. But it's it was difficult for me. And, and, and at that point, I was a pretty experienced gamer. It was difficult for me to pick up. So where would you go? Like what resources would you recommend for someone to try to lower that barrier for entry? Because to me, I think there is a significant barrier for this game. Sure. I would say there's actually two barriers to the game. Uh, the, certainly the one you mentioned uh, as far as the, the complexity of the game, you know, seven phases, each phase broken down into multiple steps. And when can you play actions and when can't you? And then there's also some complexity in how do you purchase the game? You know, what do I buy? That's a question that, get asked, that gets asked frequently is simply where do I start and what should I buy after that? So uh, as far as learning the game, I would say one of the best resources is there's a podcast called Cardboard of the Rings, and I highly recommend it. It's just it's a lot of fun to listen to, and they talk about the game a lot, and they're really funny guys. But they also produce videos, and they have, uh, as far as I know, it's still on their YouTube channel, uh, Cardboard of the Rings, where they have a tutorial of how to play. And there are many, many, many YouTube videos where you can watch people play the game. And that really probably is the best way to learn it because not even just learning the phases and the steps of each phase is, you know, potentially challenging enough, but to play the game well, you really have to know the ins and outs because, you know, there's four steps to doing this particular aspect of combat. And if you play a card in this step of combat, it's going to be more effective than if I play it in this other step. So you can really get into the nitty gritty and watching people who know the game well is a really good way to learn it. But but there are there are multiple uh, video tutorials of how to play the game because there is sort of a, a computerized resource a person can play the game on their computer uh, a tabletop simulator called uh, OCTGN uh, that's not officially sanctioned, but Fantasy Flight allows it to exist, and you can play the game that way uh, on your computer. So, so people will film themselves playing the game that way. So that's a good way to learn. And then, as far as learning where to buy, uh, one of the the blogs, and I don't want to give anybody short shrift. There's so many good blogs I could mention, but one of the most popular is called Tales from the Cards. 
And Ian over there has put together a really helpful uh, new player buyer's guide that gives a few different strategies as to which whatever particular parts of Lord of the Rings you want to experience. Maybe these are the expansions that you should buy first. And that really, I think, is helpful. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, is all of it available? You know, like in other words, like if I were to go out and pick up a core set today, the core set comes with, uh, I think we said three... Uh, three kind of adventure packs, right? Mm-hmm. Three um, quests, yeah. Three quests. Uh, and then, you know, there's that sort of first cycle of the six um, uh, leading up to, I'm trying to remember what the first one was. Was it Casa Doom? Or I'm yep. trying to remember. Yeah, that was like the first big one, the first big box. Mm-hmm. Um, are those all still available? Or are you in the position where I've got a core set, but now I'm having to buy cards from the fourth cycle or the third cycle right. or something? And, and how do they... How do they work together and things of that nature? Is that a concern? Uh, it really isn't. Fantasy Flight is currently committed to keeping everything in print. Uh, now, not everything is always in a print 100% of the time. Uh, you might come into the game when one particular cycle, and it seems to go in cycles, I guess, is how they print them. One particular cycle might be out of print at the time, but it's always coming back. There aren't any cards that have ever gone away forever. Because, again, I guess it speaks to the cooperative nature of the game that there's no reason to cycle anything out. So they just keep it all available so that, yeah, you never have to worry about not being able to get a certain thing. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for that Mm -hmm. tip. Because I know, you know, if if you're new to it, you might be worried that that gap is going to be some kind of chasm that you can't really cross. You know, that I'm going to have to now go on the secondary market and find you know, a secondhand set of these old cards and, you know, what am I going to have to pay for that, et cetera. So that's good to know. Um, Yeah, from everything I've heard, this is one of Fantasy Flight's best-selling games. And so they're they're committed to to really keeping it going. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because it's such a popular uh, IP and uh, the gameplay is is, uh, so engaging once you kind of learn how to play the game. Um, Now, Mm -hmm. while we're talking about the gameplay and it being engaging, you and I both talked about how we were initially attracted to this game for the solo play, you know, so no one wants to play a game tonight. Uh, I can sit down on the carpet and I can, you know, bust out a quest. I used to bag, like, you know, my deck and I'd bag, you know, the the quest that I was working on and and everything else was kind of back in the box. And I I just kind of kept it, like, on the bookshelf and I'd just pull it out and just play, you know, like there's no Mm -hmm. setup time for me. And I would just kick around with it and have some fun. Um, and so I kind of played it almost always solo. I, I played two-player um, with my buddy Jim and I think with Lloyd um, uh, quite a few times, you know, like maybe four or five times with, uh, I think, with Lloyd and a few times with Jim. But it was mostly solo for me. What do you mm-hmm. think about the player count? Like, is this really best at any particular player count and why? I think it's best at two players. I think I feel that that's the the quests were kind of designed to be played with two, especially at first. Um, it seems these days now there's quests that have to accommodate. They try to build quests to accommodate all player counts because I think that's one of the challenges of designing this game is you have people who want to play it solo, you have people who want to play it four player, you have people who like hard games, you have people who want it to be easy. And they've really gotten pretty good at there's every quest seems to fall into a particular niche. But but for me personally, I think the best way to play the game is with two players. 
because there's so much going on and you only have, you know, you start the game with your three heroes in play and then you're going to be playing some allies and you're going to be beefing up your characters. But so much is is coming at you from the encounter deck and the way the game scales, I guess we should say, is depending on the number of players and there can be up to four. Every time you enter into the quest phase, you're going to turn over a number of cards from the encounter deck equal to the players, the number of players. So if I'm playing solo, I only have to face one new card. If I'm playing with four people, we're going to flip over four new cards. But with four decks, it's easier to deal with those four cards with four decks than it is, it seems to be, to deal with those one card with one deck. Because you have to be able to quest, you have to be able to, and you have to be able to fight. And that can be difficult to do with only one deck, but it seems like two is really the sweet spot for being able to deal with the encounter deck. Once you get into three and four, I think it works fine. I've actually, I don't think I've ever played a four player game of this. I've played it a few times three. Almost all of my plays have either been uh, solo by myself playing two different decks, which I think is a very popular way to play the game because I really like having two decks at my disposal or playing with one other person. So for me, I think the player counts too. There's, I know there are people who love it at four. In uh, some quests, that can make it a lot easier, but there are some quests uh, that that can actually make it harder. So it it really it's sort of quest dependent. But if I had to pick a number, it would definitely be two. Well, thanks for that input because that was something I was always kind of curious about is is whether or not I was missing something by playing with the three or four player. And it sounds as though you're saying it's not bad, but that it might make things a little easier. And and I appreciate you sharing kind of how that is because a lot of times with uh, cooperative games I've found like this where you're playing against an AI, the lower player count can actually be easier. But I understand exactly what you're saying because you got four people all with heroes out, all with different attachments, all with different specialties. And you got Galadriel over here. So now it's like, okay, if I really need, um, geez, what is what is her skill? Is it, is it like wis- It's not wisdom. I, I forget what it is. There's different Galadriel. Kind of sets. Yeah, yeah. Like what 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 yeah, were the. She, she, she has a particularly high willpower. Willpower, that she can that's it. Yeah, contribute. yeah. So she's awesome when you commit her to the quest, right? And so, you know, as you, you sure, you're flipping up a lot of threat cards, but because there's so many other cards in play for the players, you have a greater, I guess, probability that, you know, someone is going to have a, a card or a combination of cards that's going to deal with that one while the other player has something that will help with this and so you you kind of are able to piece things together i think a little bit better than that solo game where sometimes i just don't have what i need right and i'm gonna have to get punched a lot um you know until i can kind of find the card that i'm looking for or get something in play um and and so yeah I, i think you're right i think it is definitely harder with fewer players um so that that's a really interesting point i hadn't really thought of it like that before so um yeah uh, and one other thing i want to sorry break in real quick uh, sure, two sure. things one just so we don't drive the fans of the game crazy <laughs> uh, i know if you're using galadriel if you want her willpower you have to attach her ring nenya to her if i could be particularly nerdy about this <laughs> um so yeah she is great though if you have that other card with her uh, but the other advantage I think that could be available in a three or four player game that I think we are missing out on if we stick to lower player counts is now with an expanded card pool. You know, there's a lot of cards. It took five years to get to this point, but there's a lot of cards now. You can build some really off the wall, goofy decks that maybe just play one crazy combo 
or they do something very specific, but they do it well. Right. But with only one or two players, you're just going to get smashed if you play a deck like that. But with three or four players, that gives at least one of the players the freedom to play something a little less uh, power hungry. You know, they can play this. Uh, there's a really neat new character named Rossiel who has a completely different way of playing the game. And but you you try to play her in solo and you're probably not going to win very many quests. But what she's doing is really neat. You want to try it. So she's best maybe in a game with three or four players. Yeah, I mean, and that's one of the fun things is trying to find those kind of character combinations that are going to uh, be what's needed or what's best for each of the particular kind of quests. And so uh, I can totally see that. I can totally see that because I know that, you know, from that core set, I, you know, would have quests where I'm like, okay, I'm going to go with, you know, these three guys and, and they're all combat heavy. And I would find, okay, that's not going to work. Like I, I have to try and be more balanced. And I think when you're playing by yourself, you really do have to try to build your deck with an eye for balance. Um, unless the specific quest is kind of pulling you in one direction or another, whereas it's almost a different game, right? Right. You know, whereas what, what you're saying is when you play with a larger player count, you can kind of feel free to kind of just go down a particular path, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and really kind of max out your character in a particular direction. And there's other people there who are going to be picking up the slack from the areas that you're ignoring. Whereas I kind of feel like you have to play it a little bit safer when you're playing solo. Would you agree with that? Definitely. If you're going to play solo, you have to be able to build a deck that's, that's capable of doing everything. And, and that's challenging. And like I said, that's almost, you're almost playing a different game at that point where you're doing everything yourself, but there's some freedom. You know, I, like I said, I like to play the game with two decks most of the time to simulate two players. That's a lot to manage. Yeah, it sure I don't is. mind doing it, but I would drastically prefer if there were somebody else there, but you know, I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't often have somebody else. So I'm willing to do that to get what I think is the best experience. But when I do build do want to just play a solo deck and it's it's neat because then i only have to deal with one deck and i'm only turning over one card and there's i think almost freedom in that or maybe just a simplicity but it's it's hard to win it's really can be hard to win that way yeah yeah it is um and i can't imagine trying to run the game with two decks so god bless you because i I can't (laughs) i can't i mean i have a hard enough time wrapping my mind around all of the different kind of of uh, ideas and strategies i'm trying to formulate in my head for one deck let alone two but then again that wasn't kind of my thing as i was coming up and it's also you know one of the great things that you know the children can do for me now so i can i can enlist the boy and tell him Mm -hmm. he's gonna have to learn how to play this game so uh (laughs) he does love lord of the rings so it's funny because this is a game that i had and i went all the way through the first i think two cycles okay and then Mm -hmm. i did end up kind of trading it away because i kind of stopped playing solo um, and and there wasn't really anyone else consistently that I was getting together with that wanted to play it, and so I ended up moving it along, which you know is kind of sad. Um, mm. But I've been like thinking about reacquiring it because now my son is to an age where I think he would be ready for this. Like I played Netrunner with him, and he kind of liked it, but kind of there. I don't think there was enough theme for him to really kind of latch onto for him. For me, mm-hmm. I love it. It's still. It's still probably my favorite LCG, and uh, I just absolutely adore the game and still will buy packs for it and just 
play around with making decks and and tweaking it and desperately trying to find other people who want to play it but yeah. uh, you know the lord of the rings i think is is as you said it's an easier sell it's an ip that people are, are familiar with comfortable with and it's easy to fall into it when you're familiar with characters you're familiar with the storyline and you're getting to actually like one of the things that i i we haven't talked about yet that i love about the game uh, uh josh is is this notion that you're you're not just following the books like this game is not designed to retell the lord of the rings or retell the hobbit it's right. designed to take you into corners of middle earth which is kind of what you were talking about before and sort of giving you some uh, some sort of text-based kind of adventures or or quests that are tied into what's familiar but they are kind of their own thing and it's right. it's it's almost like you're getting to explore different corners of middle earth and different people and really kind of like focus on these other characters who you've either never heard of before or were like mentioned once in the silmarillion somewhere or mm. something and now mm-hmm. you're kind of getting to play with them and and so to me there's this kind of exploration of the theme it kind of brings it to life more than just trying to recreate the 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 story of the lord of the rings or the hobbit w- would you agree with that well, yes and no, because that is how it started. They were telling the story of what happened between the time that Bilbo left and when Frodo actually leaves the Shire, right. which in the movies is about 30 seconds, but <laughs> in the books, it's 17 years. Right, right. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of filling in what things were happening. And you do kind of see some aspects of that. Like they talk about how they were trying to find Gollum between when you know, Bilbo had taken the ring, and so he he wandered out of the mountains to find it. He was captured by Sauron, and uh, so you actually get to play quests where, just as they talked about in the books, just sort of in passing, you know, the, the Aragorn and Gandalf were trying to to track down Gollum. So there is that's the sort of main line of the game. We've talked about how there's six cycles out, and yeah, it's telling its own story set in that timeline and they're kind of they're going all over the place we've definitely explored some really interesting areas but they've also started a second line of uh, product called the saga quests and those are retelling the stories found in the hobbit and in the lord of the rings trilogy so you can buy the first hobbit expansion and play three quests that sort of comprise the first half of that book and then you can buy the second Hobbit expansion that plays out the other half of the book in three quests. And then there's, uh, let's see, there's two, there's basically two sagas per book. So there are going to be six saga expansions, and they're basically the size of a standard deluxe expansion. Right, right. Uh, with three quests. And they've gotten up through, uh, we've completed the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers, so the next deluxe expansion, or rather saga expansion is going to start the return of the king. So we're, we are almost done with those. But so now you kind of have the option to do both. You know, if you want to get into the game to play the stories that you're familiar with, you can do that. Or if you want to explore Middle Earth, you can do that too. Yeah, well, that sounds like that must have come out after I'd kind of moved along from it because I don't remember that at all. That sounds it very was, interesting. Yeah, it was towards the end of the second uh, cycle, I believe, was when The Hobbit first came out. So pretty much between when Casa Doom or well it's called the Duero Dwelf right, cycle right. when that ended and before the next uh, the Gondor deluxe expansion I think is when the Hobbit the first one came out 
Gotcha. So I think you just missed it. I think I did. I think I did. Um, and you know, I think that's I think that's great. I think it's fun for people who want to explore that familiarity. Uh, but I actually liked that whole kind of unknown sort of aspect of it oh, you know yeah, where, where and and that was kind of one of the things that uh i was really kind of attracted to was that it just wasn't telling me the same story again so that was kind of cool mm-hmm. um all right well we've spent uh, over an hour now kind of talking about mm-hmm. like how the game works what you like about the game what the online community uh is like uh, player count we've talked about the challenge we've talked about the artwork the components all of these great things all right let's hear what you don't like about the game you know, I knew you were going to ask me that, and because uh, you always do, and I, I've tried. I, I actually have listed. I took some notes, and I, we've we've talked about most of them. I've listed things that other people might not like about the game uh, that don't bother me, but th- there are certainly challenges that could stand in the way of people. We talked about how complex it is, right, right. Uh, you know, and and one of the other challenges maybe you just don't want to build decks you know some people don't want to have to spend an hour to build a deck to sit down and play a game for an hour uh but that doesn't bother me i seem to enjoy that uh so let's see what what are some other things other people might not like uh yeah the large there there's a lot of quests now to buy but you don't have to buy them all because it's not competitive so well that's not a problem uh well the game is difficult oh one thing we didn't talk about yes it can be very challenging and they recognized that so they have released an official easy mode for the game really where yeah oh yeah you might not know about this so now every time a new quest comes out there are certain encounter cards that have a gold ring around the expansion symbol and you take those out to make the quest a little easier and when you start the game, you actually start with an extra resource on each of your heroes, so you get a nice little jump start. Wow, so, okay, all right. That, yeah. that sounds like, uh, that would be a nice way to ease people into it, though, yeah? It, it, it really is, yeah. It takes, it, it doesn't make it, you know, it's called easy mode. A lot of people have taken umbrage with that because they think, oh, people aren't going to want to play it because it's called easy. And even then, it still can be kind of challenging. Some of the quests are just so hard that when you play them on easy mode, they're maybe a little closer to standard at that point. But the thing that's really attractive to me is sometimes I'll play and I'll just do sort of half easy mode where I'll start with an extra resource on each of my characters just because it's fun to play cards out of your hand. You don't want to get stuff on the table. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so I want to encounter the quest as it was designed to be played, but eh, maybe I'll give myself a minor advantage. <laughs> uh, so, so Nothing you know, wrong that, with that. Nothing wrong with that. Sure. So again, difficulty. Nope, not a problem for me. Uh, there's no competitive scene, really, but, well, I'm just going to play it at home by myself anyway. So, you know, I've come down to it. The only thing I don't like about this game is that there isn't a digital version on my iPad. <laughs> That's I dream That's it, about huh? that, that someday they would make an iOS version and I could happily rebuy all the cards. But if I could play this on my iPad, I would play it ten times as much as I play it now. Yeah, that would so. be pretty sweet. Yeah, I mean, there's so many games like this where the uh, the, the sort of the the putting it together, the construction of it, you know, and that's why, like I said, I I would bag kind of the quest that I was working on because you know I would just keep playing that and playing that uh, until I won, and then once I won, I would continue to play it, trying to kind of tweak it 
uh, even more and and try to see if I could really kind of conquer it, you know, so mm-hmm. where my win percentage would, you know, grow even higher. And then once I kind of grew bored with it, I'd put it away. I'd pull out something else and I would immediately try to run against that quest with my the deck that I just used. And mm-hmm. that was kind of, you know, that was kind of the fun part for me. It's just like, oh, this deck doesn't work at all. <laughs> you know, it's like right. you spent all this time making this deck and then, you know, you discover, wow, you know, there's new challenges here. And so, you know, that can be something that might be frustrating, as you said, for some people. But sure. uh, it was something that was just so much fun for me because uh, the challenge was always there. So, um, well, you know, I really appreciate uh, you sharing your thoughts about, uh, you know, these things, uh, even though it sounds like you can't find anything that you <laughs> really can complain about with the game, but that's okay. Um, yeah. I, I understand you know, where I, you're coming from. If I had to dig deep, I will, I, I'll be honest and say that sometimes if I'm not super thrilled about the decks I currently have built, I, I might not play it because I don't feel like building new decks. So that that yeah that that will prevent me from playing from time to time. Yeah, and and I've found that to be true, but it it just kind of it's there as kind of like a a hump that I have to get over. Mm-hmm. And it's like once I start, then I'm into it again. But yeah, right, there is exactly. that kind of like oh god, you know, here we go. Um <laughs> but but it it can be part of the fun and and, and I think that's what players um who play this game who have played and enjoyed magic the gathering really like about it because you know as you said i think in the very beginning of the episode a lot of times like 70 percent of playing magic the gathering is building your deck and Mm -hmm. and there's there's a little bit of that here too it's not it's not anywhere near 70 percent but i would probably be willing to say like 40 50 percent of it is at least in my opinion you know because you have to get that feedback you know, it's you have to try and see what happens. Then you have to consider it for a while. You have to kind of just sit there in your chair, flipping through cards. You know, now nah, that wouldn't help. That wouldn't help. Well, maybe this would help. Let me put that aside. No, no, nope, 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 nope. You know, uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, uh, who is that? Bernadette Peters in History of the World. You know, yes, <laughs> no, 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 yes. You know, it's like <laughs> you, you have to kind of go through all the cards and and kind of start to pull ones out that you think might actually be helpful, and then you know then it becomes a ratio question uh how many of these new cards do i want to put in what am i taking out i've really grown fond of this card this card works really well with this character um you know at what point do i start to make those hard decisions and that's really that's when like my brain starts to fire and i start to enjoy the deck building again um but you're right you know when when you're confronted with that for the first time it's kind of like oh geez you know all right, you know, this deck is woefully inadequate against this quest. I'm going to really have to kind of tear it down, tear it apart. And, you know, and then that leads to a whole nother kind of stage of the gaming, depending on how into this you are, which is like, okay, so then do you record that deck? Do you write mm-hmm. down what cards were in that deck for that scenario? You know, do, do you keep a record of that? Do you not? I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of layers, and, and I think there's a lot of um, depths that you can go to with this game uh, depending on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, definitely. I People sometimes will ask, you know, can I just play the core set and enjoy it? I, I don't know. I think you have to get into this game to some degree, but you definitely don't have to. It doesn't have to be the only game you play. I think it could be if you wanted it to be. But but yeah, there's there's definitely levels of how far you want to dig deep. 
Right, right. Well, you know, uh, Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this uh, with me tonight uh, as we sit here and record. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that you kind of wanted to touch on or highlight before we kind of wrap up our conversation about this? Uh, You know, I think we hit pretty much everything. I guess one of the the main reasons I contacted you is because I wanted to put the word out there for people who maybe didn't know. Uh, The game is alive. It's doing quite well for itself. It seems like every couple months somebody pops into the forums and asks, so is this this game still going? I hadn't heard anything about it. And (laughs) and I think, you know, there's some reasons for that. It's not competitive, so it doesn't get played maybe in a lot of game stores. You know, we're all just sitting at home playing it by ourselves because it's so easy to play solo. And you might not know that there's this, you know, huge, bright, thriving community that just loves this game. And Fantasy Flight is constantly giving us, you know, more quests to play and they're very involved in the game. So so if anybody out there was wondering, oh, they're doing this episode for this old game that came out. Like, no, it's it's still going and it's great and you should try it. Well, thank you very much for uh, that. You've been a great ambassador for the game. And uh, I think, you know, really uh, without – there's really nothing else I think that, that I can think of we can talk about without diving into specific cards and, right, you know, right. specific scenarios. And, you know, I think that's why there are dedicated podcasts to this. You know, there, there mm-hmm. are dedicated blogs and, and things of that nature because there's certainly enough to talk about. And so, you know, I almost look at an episode like like this that uh, I've done one for Magic the Gathering. I've done one for Netrunner. I've done run uh, done one now for uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the card game here, uh, thanks to you. You know, these are almost like, as you said, kind of like your introduction. You know, it's almost like the 18xx episode that I did with with Joe mm-hmm. and Eric. It's like, here's mm-hmm. your introduction to this little world. And now if you want to kind of check it out, uh, you've given us all of these great resources, Josh, and these places to go and forums and uh, video uh, sites and, and whatnot so that people can really kind of check it out because there's definitely a lot more there. And as you said, this can be one of those kind of lifestyle games if you want to kind of dig that deep. And and I think that that can be something that maybe is a little bit intimidating to people. Like they mm-hmm. think, okay, if I get into this, am I going to get kind of like obsessed with this? Is this going to be something... Yes, it's going to yes, be the money are. sink for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'll stay away, you know? And yeah. I can tell you that I think that that's a legitimate concern, maybe. But I, I found with this game that because maybe, as you've said over and over, it's not a competitive game, mm-hmm. you really can just kind of get like a couple, a cycle or two. And that's going to do you for a long time, you know? Um, But because there's so much of this game, in my opinion, that's outside the game, the thinking about it, you're driving in your car, you're trying to think about, God, I got my butt handed to me. Um, (laughs) You know, I I just never seem to have enough of this or I never seem to have enough of that. Who could I bring in? What cards could I bring? Oh, wait a minute. I think I remember this card. I I think I want to try this card. And so a lot of the game is something that you can kind of do in your downtime. And then you go and you kind of build that deck and then you give it a shot. And that to me is is just a, a real advantage of the game because it, it's something that you can kind of uh, look to to kind of keep your mind occupied when you're doing sort of mindless things, you know, like, like you know, you're on a commute or you're on a treadmill or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. These are the things that you can do. And so... Yeah, I mean, you might say it's kind of a it has that potential to be a lifestyle game, but it's not necessarily a lifestyle game because you have to pursue it. It's a lifestyle game maybe because you're able to kind of uh, think about it 
in different ways at different times and kind of just enjoy yourself with the puzzle of it, you know? Uh, the other games that I think of, like the Game of Thrones game or uh, Netrunner, that's all much more mind versus mind, and this is mm-hmm. more of a puzzle to me. And so the puzzle is something that I think is going to appeal to a lot of people out there. Um, and, and and I think you shouldn't be as worried about you know, am I going to kind of get like addicted to this, you know, because I kind of had those fears a little bit with Netrunner um, because once I kind of got into that, I got into it. Um, Mm -hmm. But I discovered, you know, after a while, it's like, I've got, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cards and I'm just going to stop for a while and I'm just going to play. And I've had an enormous amount of fun doing that without having to kind of stay on that sort of wheel of that cycle of release. And I think with, you know, Lord of the Rings, especially because of how you're describing Fantasy Flight is keeping everything in print, you can take this at your own pace. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that's a tremendous advantage for this game. Um, So, you know, thanks again for uh, reaching out and for uh, agreeing to be on the show and for sharing all of your experience about this game. Oh, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Well, thank you once again. And, uh, you know, for Josh and myself, I want to say, uh, you know, thanks to everybody out there for listening. If you are intrigued about this title, uh, you know, go and check it out. Um, maybe shoot an email off to uh, Games at Game Surplus, see if Velma can track you down a copy if she doesn't already have it in stock. And, you know, see if you can maybe uh, explore a little bit of Middle Earth in this wonderful card game, either solo or with some friends. So uh, for Josh and myself, I want to say thanks. Thanks for listening and have a great night.